This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this witness. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to the weeds, ladies and gentlemen. I am your host, Jim Means, and this is the first and only podcast featuring three practicing barristers at the height of their powers, and uh, two practicing barristers and one deputy mayor of Dubbo. The only <laughs> podcast to feature a deputy mayor of, po- of Dubbo, too. So, congratulations. Sure well, we can fact check that one later. <laughs> Let me introduce to you Felicity Graham. Hi, Jim. Manuel Kirkasharian. Hi. And Stephen Lawrence. Hey, Jim. Good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you all here. Uh, fantastic. Great response on episode one. Well done to you all. Well done. A thousand to... listens, is that right? That's correct, as of time of recording. So congratulations to everyone who had the, uh, the pleasure in their ears. It was uh, ours to give. Uh, we're going to just get started with the show today. Um, no messing around. We did our uh, preliminary uh, discussions and with, this is the format for the show. We're going to th- we're going to just throw straight to uh, topic number one, which is strip searches. Felicity Graham, please inform us what's happening in strip searches in New South Wales. Yeah, so let's just start with a few kind of definitional um, issues. Um, in New South Wales, there is recognised basically two types of searches that a police officer can do on a person. Um, one is sort of an ordinary search. Um, which allows the police to um, pat someone on the outside of their clothing um, and otherwise do things like um, passing a scanner over the outside of their body. Um, They can also, um, under an ordinary search, be asked to take off, say, a a jacket or gloves or their shoes or those kind of sort of more outer garments. Um, Mm. And any of those things can be searched through and looked looked through. And then the other type of search that is recognised under the law is a strip search. And basically, if a police officer is going beyond what is permitted by an ordinary search, then that's heading into strip search territory. And that can allow a police officer... Um, to require someone to take off all of their clothes and can um, allow a police officer to then um, examine the person naked. Right there on the spot. Yeah. Okay. No, do you get a, um, do they, like, you know, like those camping showers or something like that to, do they, I mean, does anyone know the procedure of a strip? Like, they don't just get you naked in the street. There's specific provisions uh, that Flick's probably going to talk about, that talk about if it's a male person being searched, it should be a male person searching and vice versa, and also specific Reasonable provisions in yeah. respect of children. That's where I'm be... supposed to be yeah. going. Yeah, so there are, they're supposed to... Flexible. Yeah. 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 Well, it's um, the discretion of the police officer. Yeah, very much so, with certain rules, yeah. Yeah, but there's these kind of ideas of reasonableness um, and trying to preserve the dignity of the person being sure. searched. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, there are special rules relating to children being searched. So if you're under 10, you can't be strip searched. Um, what, but you could be 11. Yeah, yeah, and so the recent data that's been kind of published is that 
children as young as 10 and 11 have been strip searched um, and right up to people in their 80s. Um, so, yeah, and it's been it's been our experience. Well, yeah, dude, and it, well, I've seen some of it in the media filtering down through to my, and obviously I don't have a, you know, switched on eye to the legal matters that come through like you guys do, but are there any latest examples that really stick out or have really sort of brought this to the forefront more so than, you know, the run-of-the-mill strip searches that I guess have been happening? Yeah, I mean, I guess some of the music festival um, cases have um, brought this topic more into light. Um, And then, yeah, we've been involved in cases over the years where the legality of the police conduct in relation to a strip search has come up. Well, I'd imagine Um, it would come up every time. It's such a bizarre thing to do to someone that surely the law just can't go, yep, approved, every single time. Yeah, so the the kind of basic requirements for a strip search as they kind of go beyond an ordinary search is that the seriousness and urgency of the circumstances have to make the strip search necessary. Okay. And that's been something that I think has been come under some criticism for the police not having um, paying sufficient attention to that requirement mm. and also not being kind of sufficiently trained on that really meaning that this should happen in rare circumstances. Okay, all right. Um, and what we've seen lately is a real upsurge in um, the use of strip searches by police in New South Wales. So, for example, just to give you some of the numbers, the 2006 data... Um, Strip searches, in terms of being recorded, were used 277 times a year. Okay. The 2018 data, so 12 years later, um, there were 5,483 recorded searches in a year. So almost a 20-fold increase in that 12-year period. So you go from one a day to like 30 to 40 Mm. a day. Has there been a change in the law in that time? So there's been some sort of positing of opinions about why that has changed. Um, there hasn't been there, there have been some changes kind of to the Law Enforcement Powers and Responsibilities Act provisions, the definitions around frisk searches versus ordinary searches and strip searches and so on. But, yeah, but they're not changes that would encourage more no, searches, are they? No. no. So yeah, one of the recent kind of revelations comes from some questions that have been asked in the Legislative Council um, budget estimates that were just published um, last week. And that shows that basically police are searching people to meet quotas um, for the number of people that they search um, as part of a so-called business plan target. And so... And they they admit to this. Yeah, so in... So in one of the answers to budget estimates, um, there was this answer given. There is a compass indicator called police powers person search. The indicator displays the number of persons... Sorry, the number of person searches conducted under police powers. There is a business plan target for this indicator, which is calculated based on a three-year average of actuals. And so... um, David Shoebridge, who's a Greens MP, who's quite active in this area, um, has recently been tweeting about this issue and saying he thinks, yeah, this is maybe one of the explanations for it. Right, the absolute. Mm. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about 
a KPI being in place for something like this. Sure. Quite apart from it being, you know, insane managerialism, you've got police officers taking into account an utter irrelevancy in the exercise of their powers. I have to meet this quota. But worse is, it's counterproductive because what happens when you meet the quota? Once once those quotas are met, they're not going to search anymore. The, the, The incentive to continue to search goes down. So you might find yourself searching a whole bunch of innocent people, meeting your quota, and then, oh, you know, that guy looks a bit dodgy, but we've met our quota for this week, or however long it is. Totally. And there's been some quite um, interesting analysis done by the um, UNSW Law School. Dr. Michael Grucock and Dr. Vicky Sentas have published a report recently in collaboration with Redfern Legal Centre, um, it's called Rethinking Strip Searches by New South Wales Police. I'd really recommend people have a read of it if All they're right. interested in, in some of the details. We'll put a link to that in uh, our posting for episode one. Yeah, for sure. Um, but one of the things that they... Episode two. Sorry, everyone. Please continue, Flick. <laughs> a huge percentage of these um, searches that are being done, there was nothing found. Mm-hmm. So... Except some red faces. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, if you, if something is found, then you might have your day in court and someone might argue the reasonableness or otherwise oh, of the sure. search. But if you if nothing's found, who's going to bother? There's no legal aid funding for you to go and fight the police and say you, you know, acted right. beyond your power. So they just get away with it. It's yeah. crazy. And that's what's talk- so scary about this quota thing. I was just going back to that for a moment. What you're you see from, from cross-examining police in court regularly about the exercise of powers is the police really struggle to educate the police by and large about the nature and extent of their powers and it's sometimes almost an exception to come across a police officer once you interrogate an issue properly who actually fully understands their powers. And the state of mind that they have to form. Yeah, precisely. It's really complex stuff. I mean, it takes, you know, law students and lawyers a long time to learn it. But then you have this additional factor of a quota Mm. and that really undermines any prospect of them properly exercising their powers because this external external incentive is there. Mm. You know, and the police... Yeah, the police use this language like proactive policing, high-visibility policing, and that's basically code to a police officer for go out onto the streets, stop people and search them. Be a, a visible presence exercising your powers as some kind of deterrent generally or to kind of tick off our KPIs yeah, under the proactive yeah. policing indicators that are Broken part of our... drugs or something. Mm. But um, what I don't understand is um, why are they strip-searching 11-year-olds? That's just, like... Yeah, yeah. Why, why would you walk that grey area? Or? Oh, on the STMP? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's the Suspect Target Management Program. Um, yeah, they could be. I mean, we... I reckon that might be a large contributor to this huge increase. Yeah. Like the introduction of STMP stuff, which is where particular people are put on effectively a list and then they're targeted by the police for... The same people. Yeah, so it's a list of people that the police have identified on the basis of intel and knowledge as being a high risk of reoffending, and then they will target those people in respect of traffic, in respect of... Uh, possession of small amounts of drugs, a whole range of things designed to basically incarcerate and incapacitate them. Yeah, but a strip search? Yeah. Is there such a thing as a partial strip search? 
Uh, yeah, so... Like just checking the shoes and checking the pockets, that sort of thing. Yeah, like, so, for example, if you're asked to lift up your shirt, um, <coughs> that would be a strip search, I think. Uh-huh. Um, but it wouldn't require you to take off all your clothes. Yeah. Um, there's a bit of a contest about whether a police officer um, putting their fingers in the waistband of your trousers or your pants and moving their hands around and pulling it away from your body or, or even of the waistband of your underpants, whether that's a strip search or not. Um, I think it is. But um, the police have perhaps, in answer to some of the kind of controversy that's been in the media around this, recently issued um, a manual about person searches and strip searches and we can put a link to that on the page as well and in that um the police actually describe that as being part of an ordinary search not as a strip search so that's i think an area of controversy and something that's concerning in terms of there being um not um such clarity for police officers about the the scope of their powers absolutely absolutely do we know of any cases of police officers who have gone on record to complain about this or no that would never happen would it no <laughs> is there any no, New no, South Wales no, 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 it's just it's it occurs to me that if I touch you on your shoulder against your will that's an assault mm. if I strip you that's an indecent assault it's an offense that carries serious prison time right and this is happening to scores of people regularly for absolutely no reason. It's crazy. To yeah. meet a KPI. I don't know. I'm just listening to you. And I'm like, this I mean, it's obviously a normal and important part of policing. Right. I mean, as a general proposition. Yeah. You know, police in all parts of the world, I would imagine, do in some circumstances strip searches. Right. But what I find extraordinary is such a dramatic increase mm. in such a relatively short period of time. Yeah, and I should say that data that I was referring to, I think just refers to what's called in-field strip searches. So there's obviously a place for strip searches that happen to people who are in custody, sure. which yeah. has a different kind of purpose often, which yeah. is often their own protection to make sure that they don't have something that could harm themselves whilst okay. they're in that custodial mm. environment and there's a duty of care. Okay. Um, but, yeah, there's certainly the infield. In other words, you're on the street or you're at a music festival or you're yeah. at a railway station. Um, yeah, they're looking for narcotics in the orifices of the body. They're looking for weapons. So there are sort of basically three main things that can justify an ordinary search or a strip search. If you if the police reasonably suspect you've got something stolen on you, okay. If the police reasonably suspect that you've got weapons or a dangerous mm-hmm. article on you, right. or if police reasonably suspect that you've got drugs on you, sure. Police suspicion that a person possesses prohibited drugs accounts for ninety one percent of all recorded reasons why police conduct a strip search. Yeah. It's so crazy. Wow. I mean, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Flicky and I were involved in a case out in Broken Hill. Uh, back in when was it, Flicky? Oh, it started, I think, back in 2011, and then there was an appeal um, a bit later. Yeah, and that was a case involving the strip search of a teenager by the side of the road, right. which was ultimately held to be unlawful. But the search itself was also held to be unlawful on the basis that the police didn't have reasonable suspicion to suspect that uh, he was in possession of drugs. He right. was searched in respect, I think, of a small amount of cannabis as what was ultimately found on him. Uh, but it came out in evidence that he had been searched, I think, 26 times in the previous two and a half years and they had not found drugs on 
on any of those occasions. Crazy. So you're talking about an Aboriginal child in Broken Hill being searched and or strip searched on 26 occasions over two years and they do not find drugs on any of those previous occasions. And they still do it. Well, it went on for years in that case. Yeah, um, and we, we have acted for clients where their routine experience is if they're walking down the street and the police see them, they'll stop and search them. And the other thing to, to remember about the data is that the police don't always record when they do search. So that's going to under-report the numbers wow. because particularly if they don't find something or no offence kind of otherwise arises from the circumstances, then although there are requirements for police to make records, they don't always record them. I believe there is a news report that indicates the exact case that you're talking about. Mm. Flick, you've got it lined up right there. An Aboriginal family in Broken Hill will complain to the Ombudsman after a court found that police conducted an improper roadside strip search on an intellectually disabled teenager. The district court judge found that police had clearly breached procedure as they had no grounds for arresting the boy and searching his underpants for drugs. His lawyer says Aboriginal people in far west New South Wales deal with policing like this on a regular basis. Stephen Lawrence is the Principal Legal Officer with the Aboriginal Legal Service in Western New South Wales, now which Deputy, represents the boy. Deputy Mayor. Yeah. A young person was walking down the street in Broken Hill at about 5.30 in the afternoon. He was stopped and searched by police unlawfully uh, because the police simply had no reasonable suspicion. So this is a case of a young person simply really being stopped for no reason. Up to six officers were involved in searching the boy's underpants. They found a foil package in his genitals containing a small amount of cannabis. But today, a district court judge found that both stopping the boy and strip-searching him breached police procedure. There was no power to undertake the search lawfully at all, and that is uh, very clear on the court findings. Uh, secondly, the uh, strip-search itself was also unlawful uh, because various provisions in relation to support persons and so forth, so forth were not complied with. So this is a doubly um, unlawful uh, search. The boy had been stopped by police 26 times in the previous two and a half years and he'd never once been found with drugs. The family has requested an ombudsman's inquiry into the case. There were apparently six police uh, ultimately involved in the search of a teenage Aboriginal boy who was doing nothing but walking down the street and was stopped uh, for no good or lawful reason and subjected to uh, a strip search. In my view, uh, any citizen in the community would find that to be an unusual uh, circumstances and something that would certainly call for an investigation. A spokesman for the New South Wales Police Force says it's reviewing the court's decision to see whether any action will be taken. OK, so that was 2013. Yeah. And... The KPIs have increased since then. Well, the numbers um, have definitely increased since then. Mm. Yeah, Probably. in terms of the the actual numbers, I'm not sure whether they've increased their KPIs mm. to say we want more searches done. Yeah, right. that'd be something that, to look at. And I think that really speaks to a few things, but including the changing nature um, of policing. Yeah. So more use of information technology, more use of intelligence-driven approaches, more use of things like STOMP, where you're focusing on particular individuals, so it's more intelligence-driven. So the old sort of idea of police on the beat just sort of roaming around, deterring crime, just doesn't work that way anymore. It's very sophisticated and it's very uh, driven by numbers. Right. And that obviously goes back to the quota issue. And I think that's 
part of the explanation for this explosion in strip searches? Yeah, and, and one wonders whether that's just managerialism. I don't know that that works any better than having police on the beat who know their charges rather than the, the charges in the sense of the people that they're talking to. Yeah. Uh, I, I, to my mind, that seems more sensible and better. And if what we're doing is detecting a couple of more offences at the price of searching thousands of people, mm. it's not worth it. Mm. Yeah. Well, when the, the, the nil find stats are 60 to 80% of the strip searches, nothing's found. And if it's primarily about the possession of small amounts of drugs, then there's a real policy question about, you know, A, is that desirable? And B, is it really about that? Yeah, well, because yeah. I don't think your average typical police officer is probably that concerned to focus on the possession of small amounts of drugs. It seems to me more, more likely that, that there's a situation in place where that's a pretext for, for other motivations for right. policing. Yeah, the way certain communities are dealt with, certain areas are dealt with, certain people are dealt with. Yeah. So you might, for instance, have a concern that a person's a DV offender and so you'll be all of a sudden concerned to search them for possession of cannabis. Uh, because you know that it's going to be a breach of a bond or something of that nature. And that's been one of the criticisms levelled at Stomp or STMP, that that you might suspect someone for a certain sort of conduct, but it leads to a quite oppressive focus on them um, in respect of other sorts of conduct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Such as driving uh, small amounts of drugs. Mm-hmm. And the one of the sort of focuses of the UNSW RLC report is about the potential for strip searching to seriously traumatise people, particularly young people, and particularly in circumstances where young people and Aboriginal people are disproportionately represented in the data. So 45% of people subject to a strip search are under 25. Um, Those 10% are Aboriginal on the kind of most recent data. That you know, using these kind of activities, these police powers, um, as some kind of yardstick of successful policing by way of a KPI, where the act itself of requiring someone to take all of their clothes off. And sometimes, you know, people are asked to squat and cough and pull their buttocks cheeks apart and do all these things that there's a real question about the legality of those things because there's a whole other regime under the forensic procedures legislation that allows um, a court to make an order for cavity searches to be performed upon a person, but it requires that imprimatur of a court. That's why and I don't understand why a police officer would take the risk. Sorry to cut you off there. Mm, please no. Because then nothing happens. Mm. What did the ombudsman do? I assume nothing. I mean, ultimately where we land is police are doing unlawful things where courts find them unlawful and nothing happens. Well, this is and civil litigation occurs, successful litigation occurs right. where people, you know, win compensation for the assaults and batteries that are um, committed upon them and doesn't change police culture. So how is culture changed? How are you holding police to account? What's David Shoebridge's approach? Does anybody have any suggestions? Felicity, start with you. Yeah, look, there have been a few kind of suggestions about how to bring about some greater accountability. One is that there needs to be some law reform to actually, in the legislation, create some more um, clear parameters around when a police officer can do a strip search, what the limits of a strip search um, should be, and um, 
prohibiting those kind of um, directions that are more in the nature of a cavity search. Um, and then also some there have been some recommendations in relation to record-keeping, um, so requiring police officers to make clear records, including the reasons for the search, including why they say it was so urgent and serious in the circumstances that a strip search was necessary. But I really query whether um, that kind of accountability measure um, is likely to be successful without some serious cultural shifts in the New South Wales Police because for a long time there have been um, standard operating procedures or police handbooks that have been published by the Commissioner that set out the requirements for police officers to record any time they exercise a power, to record the reason for why they did it and so on. And just the other day I was cross-examining a police officer who said he'd never heard of the police handbook. He'd never heard of this requirement to record his reasons for exercising a power. He was a police officer of almost 10 years standing. He was a detective. The kind of accountability measures that already do exist are not being given you know effect in reality it's there's one accountability measure which is that we have a minister for police and they're meant to let the police do what they want independently but there's no sensible person in our democracy who thinks that people should be spreading their buttocks on the street and the police minister should simply be putting pressure on the police on the commissioner to stop it and Mm. it's his job Mm. I think another practical measure um, is the decriminalisation of the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs mm. because, we, I mean, we see, it seems, almost in every sphere of government this um, encroachment on the liberty of the subject and this explosion of searches since 2006 is just another example of that. Um, and if 91% of those searches are drug-related, I suspect that the very large percentage of that 91% is about the possession of small amounts um, of drugs. And decriminalisation makes sense um, as a social policy measure um, in terms of harm minimisation, but I think it also makes sense in terms of the protection of the rights of the, the, rights of the individual because if it's not a crime to possess small, small amounts, then police will not have reason or cause to search the large majority of these people. I believe there is a gentleman who plays a professional sport in this country by the name of Israel. Ah, oh, yes, Falau. Israel Falau, indeed. And uh, does he still play professional? No, sport? he doesn't still Sorry, play professional former, football. Former professional sportsman mm. in the country named Israel Falau caught up in some hot water recently over not comments as such, but um, <coughs> I don't know memes and social media. Um, postings that have got him into hot water and caused him to lose his job and it brings up a whole debate around many many topics and Stephen Lawrence you seem to know a lot about it please fill us in what's been happening yeah so uh, the federal government has just released a draft uh, religious freedom bill okay so an exposure draft um, not an actual bill that's been introduced to federal parliament yet 
and the communities have the opportunity to make submissions on that, which actually closed today, the 2nd of October. So oh. sorry, listeners, you don't Bummer. have the chance to make submissions if you haven't already done it. What, I mean, it would have been nice to know, but yeah. OK. <laughs> Thanks, federal government. So, yeah, look, it's interesting that you raise Israel Jim, because a lot of people out there probably think that he is the reason why this is on the agenda, but in fact he's not. Um, uh, the federal government in the Turnbull era when uh, the marriage equality issue looms large and ultimately went into the parliament, at that time actually um, established an expert committee and asked that expert committee to report on religious freedom and in particular whether Australian law needs a religious freedom bill or act um, and whether any other amendments to anti-discrimination law and the like are needed. That's pure coincidence. Yeah, it actually is. I mean, it I was probably, in terms of public interest, spurred along by the Flower thing. Okay. Uh, but the process uh, started uh, back in uh, 2017, Good. and the expert uh, report uh, came out in May of 2018. Right. And uh, the government has just recently released um, its draft bill, which has just been open for comment, as I said. Do you reckon that um, if the Israel Folau saga hadn't happened that this legislation would have really had much attention brought to it? Do you think it would have just... I think it would have been much less controversial but I think it would have been still of a high degree of public interest because, you know, it involves the churches and it involves a lot of interest groups who are interested um, um, in the protection of religious freedom because it impacts on other rights potentially Mm. Um, but yeah it certainly spurred it along I think and energised very much Mm. uh, the Christian base um, I suppose uh, to be active um, on the topic What is religious freedom Stephen? I don't understand. Why do they feel like they don't have any freedom? Yeah look it's a human right which I think is an important point to make because a lot of the debate certainly around Falau has been about Uh, the rights of people who might be offended by the sort of things that he has said. But at its core, this uh, issue of religious freedom is about the human right of freedom of religion. And it's one of many rights that are in uh, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which we have signed up to as a country. And look, it basically is uh, two things. It's um, a series of rights um, in a positive sense. So rights... Um, that allow a person to do certain things. So, for example, uh, to to conduct religious uh, rituals um, or ceremonies, uh, to start religious schools, uh, to run religious hospitals, uh, to wear religious clothes um, and dress and so forth. So so there's no law at the moment that uh, protects or enables all that because I'm pretty sure that's been happening in this country since, really... um, First fleet, I would imagine. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, what? Yeah, so religious freedom, um, in that positive sense, is not actually part of this bill, um, um, I should say. Okay. Uh, but also not part of Australian law at the moment. There is a provision in the Constitution, okay. but that um, is a provision that focuses on disallowing um, a state religion and invalidating laws that um, impose religious um, observance or otherwise um, sort of impact. Okay. Um, on people's rights to be free of religion primarily. Okay. Uh, so religious freedom, um, in that positive sense of a right to do certain things, um, is not part of this bill and is not in that positive sense, by and large, been part of Australian law either. Right, right, right. Um, 
Yeah, so the other aspect of religious freedom um, in terms of what's in the ICCPR um, is a negative right, um, if you want to uh, uh, express it that way. So a right to be free of discrimination okay. um, on the basis of holding a particular religious uh, view um, or belief or um, in the inverse, being a person um, who's not religious. Right. So freedom of religion also protects a person atheists. who's not religious. Yeah, atheists. Yeah. Okay. Um, and protects everyone from things like having a state religion um, or having uh, certain rituals or conventions um, imposed on the citizenry generally. Okay, so this is a bill crafted out of the marriage equality debate to cater to both sides of the argument. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so the bill that um, has been released in draft form does basically two things. Um, So the first thing that um, it does is it makes it unlawful to discriminate on the basis of religious belief or activity in specified areas um, of public life. Uh, so it does not create a positive right to freedom of religion. Right. So it doesn't more like an anti-discrimination bill rather yeah, than a religious freedom bill. Don't we already have an anti-discrimination bill? We have an anti-discrimination act. Yes. Oh, um, what do we need another one for? Just why do we need double the reminding? Uh, because religion's um, not protected under that. So I think like that's right. Religion is not sexuality, a... um, disability. So this is the grey area with which Israel Folau operated in. Yeah, it's also uh, the case that this law will apply um, across Australia. Obviously, it's a federal law, proposed federal law, and certain jurisdictions do not protect religion in their anti-discrimination acts. Oh, okay. Yeah, so this is designed to create a consistent uh, freedom of religion, if you like, in that sense of being free from discrimination okay. uh, that will apply nationally. How would this apply to Falau now? I mean, hasn't damage already been done? Yeah, so basically uh, the law says that a person will have been subjected to unlawful discrimination on the basis of religious activity or belief if, A, uh, they've engaged in belief or activity. Uh, so in his case, he expressed on social media what I think most people would accept to be fairly mainstream expressions of Christian belief um, about sexual morality. Uh, Then uh, the next requirement is the person has been subject to direct or indirect discrimination um, on the basis of their religious belief or activity. Now, in his case, um, his contract was terminated. Yeah. So I think a fairly conventional view of anti-discrimination law would suggest that that is direct uh, discrimination um, on the basis of the expression of religious belief. Right. Um, then uh, the third requirement is that the discrimination occurs in a specified area of public life and employment is included in uh, the bill or the draft bill as a specified area of public life. Okay, so with this bill, right, once it's enabled, does this mean that I, you know, I could put up a post on... Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com. My social media saying, gays are going to hell and be completely fine in my employment 
I don't have to worry about. It would depend. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. there would depend on who your employer is to okay. start with. Right. So there's a well, okay. a specific kind of carve out for um, certain types of employers, um, and basically depending on how big the company is. Okay. Just say I'm working at KFC or McDonald's. Yeah, so if KFC has a um, revenue for the current or previous financial year of at least $50 million, then um, and, it, and KFC is not a Commonwealth state or territory body, etc., then it would qualify as what's called a relevant employer under the proposed legislation. Okay. And if that um, is the case, then employers are permitted to make certain conduct rules um, as pertains to their employees. And if a conduct rule um, imposed um, on you had the effect of restricting or preventing the employee from making a statement of belief um, at a time other than when the employee is performing work on behalf of the employer, so if you made the statement saying your private capacity on Facebook outside of work hours... And that would certainly apply in Flowers' case, I would have thought. Yeah, I would have thought so. Then, um, so long as he wasn't using, for example, like a Rugby Australia Instagram kind of profile or something like that. That's Um, part of the issue in his case because I think there's a... I think it's been relied upon in their defence that they have filed in court, Rugby Australia, that... There's a, there was a picture on the Instagram account of him in a Wallabies jersey. Yeah. So the, I think the meme had two parts to it. One was a photograph of him in his Wallabies jersey and then the other half was the picture that said warning, drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, idolaters, hell awaits you. Right. Um, yeah, so there might be a question factually about whether that was in performance of his role. But assuming all of those things are the case, then if the employer can show that there would be unjustifiable um, financial hardship to the employer, um, then that conduct rule is deemed to be reasonable effectively. And so in the Rugby Australia example, for if they could prove that they were going to lose all their sponsorship, yeah. for example, if they couldn't impose upon right, okay. their it's players. Like, it acts like a bre- uh, breach of contract. Like, well, it is a breach of contract. It's an You're... exception to the requirement on employers not to discriminate. Yeah, yeah. So, You're putting our financial ability at risk. Our money is more important than your fundamental human right. Yeah, right. That's the grey area that can operate in. Well, I mean, it's it's an interesting proposition because if you were to apply that across the board to a whole bunch of human rights, then I think most people would be up in arms. Mm. And for some reason, this human right is exempt from that on a corporate basis. Now, the, the way I see it, there's two aspects to this issue. One is the money corporation rights issue yeah. and the other one is the fundamental issue about discriminating against people in the way that you say things. Sure. Now that is a separate discussion to my mind to whether or not corporations should be allowed to direct what people do when they are not working for them 
the time they have off yeah. uh, simply because it might affect their bottom line. And I think it's not the case that they have to lose all their sponsors. They have to lose, you know, uh, some <clears throat> substantive amount of yeah. their sponsorship. Unjustifiable mm. financial hardship. And that, to my mind, is just ridiculous. So, it would be a pretty unusual situation, though, wouldn't it? Like, <coughs> like it is certainly a limitation on the right, but if you imagine scenarios involving people who aren't celebrities and who aren't being relied upon for their brand in the sense that Flower was, it's not going to be a very broad cohort of people mm. that this exception could be invoked in respect of. Mm. I wouldn't have thought. It's quite limited, isn't it? will be difficult to... In terms of proving it. that as a consequence of out-of-work statements, uh, the corporate actor will incur a significant financial harm, that'd be pretty unusual. I, I, I mean, if you've got a business that's got a few clients who express a particular view about something and they say, look, unless you sack this bloke... Yeah, key clients. Yeah. Key clients. So there's that specific caveat that Felicity just talked about, but there's also some broader defences. So, for example, um, it's not discrimination if it's uh, action in response to the expression of beliefs, which would be considered by a reasonable person to counsel or promote conduct that would constitute a serious offence against an Australian law. So, for example, when I was having one of many debates um, on social media about the Israel Folau thing, a few people said to me things along the lines of, oh, well, what if, you know, there's a religion out there, um, um, you know, that is suggesting that slavery of black people um, is part of their religion? Or slavery of wives. Or you know, slavery like of wives or something. Should that be, you know, because that m- might be a bona fide expression of religious belief, are you saying that someone should be free to express those things um, and not uh, have any consequences? And I think this exception would probably apply in that circumstance because if you were advocating slavery um, of certain people, that would constitute um, an offence under Australian law and therefore that would fall within the exception because a reasonable person would think that uh, you were promoting conduct that would constitute um, a serious offence. So that's another broad exception to the sorts of discrimination. Okay. I think the other interesting thing that sort of comes from Israel Folau's meme and the interpretation of it is whether or not that the language that he uses in relation to hell um, has some meaning that involves kind of intimidation or um, seeking to visit um, ill on people in this life in circumstances where we use the phrase go to hell in a secular way, I think, in our language, where it's very much suggesting, you know, I want something really terrible to happen to you in this life and used by people who don't believe in an afterlife. Um, And so there's, I think, some interesting factual issues around, well, how do you actually interpret language that is of a religious kind but has evolved yeah. in our increasing secularism to take on different meanings. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it also raises this really complicated issue about about harm, harm and speech. So it's commonly, obviously, uh, the case in law that if you engage in speech that will uh, incite violence, for example, then generally mm. under anti-discrimination laws in state and territories, it's not going to be protected because mm. someone you know, might suffer an immediate harm because of it. Yeah. 
And I don't think you can really construe Falau's comments or his statements as statements that counsel sort of immediate acts of violence. And so the sort of retort to that from people that are believing that he should be sanctioned or that his conduct shouldn't be allowed in some way is to fall back on broader notions of harm. So to talk about, you know, high suicide rates in the LGBT community and to say that statements like this are part of that sort of expression and views in the culture mm. uh, that cause that sort of harm. That enable other... Other broader adverse. sorts of harm, yeah, and that that's a rationale to allow that conduct to be censured. And that is pretty problematic in terms of, of orthodox human rights uh, jurisprudence because it's a broader sort of harm that's very hard to quantify and define. There's very different views, I would have thought, about whether imposing a sanction on his behaviour in any way meaningfully impacts on those uh, broader harms. There'd be views expressed that it could make those harms worse, um, I would have thought. So it raises that sort of tension between harm and speech and what sort of harm are we actually talking about and trying to prevent. Grey area. So what's the latest on Philadelphia? Is he taking this to the High Court, is that correct? He's filed an action in the Federal Circuit Court, which is the first court in the federal hierarchy. Right. And he's raised a million or two million dollars to fund it. So I would have thought he'll take it as far as he can. But he's relying on a provision, an existing provision in the Fair Work legislation that that prevents employers taking adverse action based on expressions of religious belief. And, um, yeah, this, I mean, opinion seems to be to be quite divided in uh, the legal community, from, from what I can tell, well, in terms of experts in that area, in terms of what they think about the merits of it. Sure. You know, it's, yeah, pretty interesting. Where I struggle is... is I, I just don't think corporations should have anything to do with this, but where I struggle is with the harm argument because I do actually accept that people are dying. I do accept that people, you know, find themselves under all kinds of psychological stresses as a result of what people say. And you can't discount that. Um, I think we now live in an age where we are awake enough to see that there are real impacts on people and we don't want that to be in our community. Well, the the solution is is definitely not, in my view, having corporations who are seeking profit making those decisions. Yeah, but what about the role of some of these especially in the field of sport, these um, big figures to kind of influence the zeitgeist and bring people along on kind of more progressive journeys, like, for example, in relation to racism or not um, discriminating against homosexual people or, you know, like there's there's a bit of a clash, isn't there? Because on the one hand, you say, well, corporations should stick out of it. Um, but on the other hand, don't some of these big, particularly sporting companies, have this kind of power to have these role model figures who can then kind of shape the conversation around... Um, in a more progressive way. I, I don't like the idea of a bunch of old people sitting around a board table who are earning lots of money and thinking about how they can make more money making decisions about how the future of our social fabric should look. Mm. I do think, 
that the right place for this to happen is societal. I think it should be individuals pushing back. I want people to speak badly because then I want other people to shout them down. Mm. And I do want role models leading us. I just don't want it done in the the boardroom. The marketplace of ideas. And I don't think that the state should intervene. You know, the other aspect of our society being more caring is that we often run into the arms of the state and say, help us. The problem is, and I think we'll see this a bit later on in this podcast, the problem is that once the state starts regulating speech, you've got all kinds of issues. Well, it's it's funny you should bring that up, Manny. Because the next topic of conversation is the recent raids on journalists that have happened in the last, well, I guess, this, I dare say, six to 12 months. It's been over a year, right? Um, uh, look, it's concerning. Let's talk about it. Manny? So in April 2018, a News Corp journalist published an article quoting uh, in quote-unquote intelligence source who told her about a proposal to allow cyber spies to secretly access information like medical records, financial transactions, etc. Um, on the 4th of June of this year, the federal police raided a house and they went through underwear, they went through cookbooks uh, and the next day, the AFP raided the Ultimo offices of the ABC. That was in relation to a report called the Afghan Files, Uh, which relate to alleged misconduct by SAS officers in Afghanistan. Um, Those raids were conducted pursuant to warrants. Uh, Those warrants were issued, in effect, to investigate breaches of secrecy laws. Um, There's all kinds of aspects to this matter. Um, In the case of the News Corp journalists, High Court submissions were filed this week against the warrant. Uh, Those touch on free speech aspects, which I'll come to in a minute. Um, And the Attorney-General this week issued a directive that he personally, or at least ex officio, was going to decide who would be charged uh, when professional journalists are being investigated for disclosure of things that the government doesn't want disclosed. And I think this was an attempt by the AG to head off some criticism um, of, of, of the potential of reporters being charged. But as the Law Council of Australia and others pointed out, it really makes the decision to prosecute political and it puts pressure on journalists to keep in the good puts sure. to politicians. And what we've got really is serious questions about what we might call the most important aspect of free speech, or one of the most important aspects of free speech, journalists reporting government. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that this does look like a bit of a government hatchet job, or, you know, are we taking a hands-off approach and saying... uh, Because it was very interestingly timed. Yeah, I I mean, I think... I mean, dare I say that, It's it's obviously disturbing. It raises a whole lot of questions and engages obviously a whole lot of rights but it's difficult I think to know for example are they are they investigating the journalist for a criminal offence or are they investigating the journalist in terms of obtaining evidence that might be relevant to the commission 
of criminal offence by a leaker. Yeah. Now, if it's the latter, it would seem to be less disturbing, perhaps, because I think everyone would accept on some level the government is entitled to protect information and that certain leaks should be uh, crimes if the information is important enough and sensitive enough. So I don't find the mere fact of a raid on a journalist to be um, in and of itself unacceptable. Oh, okay. Um, And to work out whether, you know, this is oppressive and whether this unacceptably impinges on, on anyone's rights, I think it's necessary to understand a bit more about the facts uh. and find out exactly exactly why it happened or to examine the provision that creates the criminal offence um, and identify that that is unacceptably broad or so forth. But, yeah, so for me it's a bit of a wait and see with this as to whether it's unacceptable. Unfortunately, yeah. why it happened is a secret. The criminal offence as it was and indeed as it remains is so convoluted that I think there's one expert said that there were 1,000 different ways that one might plead the charge which is to put in layman's terms, there's a thousand different ways you can commit it. Um, just in terms of, not not in the sense of factually you can commit it, there's a thousand different legal ways that you might say you've committed this crime. Right. Um, the other argument that's been put in the High Court is that the offence itself um, breaches the what's called the implied right to political communication, which is the only sort of constitutionally enshrined and even implied, so it's not actually written there, but they yeah. pulled it out of it. Right. It's the only constitutional right you've got to speech, the only one that can't be impinged right. by the but legislature. Not, but how does that protect you? Well, it doesn't really protect you all that much. Right. Um, it allows you to talk about elections. It, for example, has been used to stop laws against political laws that attempt to prevent political advertising. Yeah. Um, there's, well, that, yes. It is quite a controversy. I mean, the High Court was split 3-3 in the Man Monis case about whether or not he could... Um, he was constitutionally protected in writing those letters to the families of deceased soldiers who'd fought in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, and he was prosecuted for that offence of using the Postal Service to offend. Oh, okay. And... Yeah, and this goes back to the flower thing in the sense that there's this ongoing controversy, I suppose, in legal policy about whether there is in any sense a right not to be offended and whether in that sense it's a legitimate part of the criminal law in the context of an implied right to political communication for the criminal law to criminalise words or conduct that merely cause offence. So, for example, in his case... He was writing to the families of dead soldiers saying highly offensive things. But it was in a political context and he was expressing political ideas about Australia's involvement in in Afghanistan and so forth. He, I think, was publicising the fact that he was sending the letters, was clearly in a really misguided and awful way um, engaged in a political process. And the High Court was three all on the question of whether any law that merely criminalises offence is constitutionally invalid. Right. So there is a sort of some broader aspects to it, but mm. it's predominantly about communication, about elections um, and political issues. Okay, okay. All right, now I've got a question for you, Manny, and, yeah. and for everyone. Um, I have this fear that um, certain behaviours um, kind of need, you need to sort of, sort of put the brakes on them now 
because they can set precedent for twenty governments from 20, 30 years from now. The Australian government in 2055, for example, can draw on this and say, yes, we're clamping down on leaked behaviour. It was done in the Morrison <coughs> government, so therefore there's a precedent there. It's fair game. And I think in, the, in an era of, of a Trump, and particularly what he's going through right now, when there was, you know, interference from his phone call with the Ukrainian Prime Minister or President, excuse my ignorance there, um, you know, there's, a, there's, there's examples of interference to stop information getting out. And so I would agree with you, Matty, in saying that I think the journalist should be protected here in somewhat, in, 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 with some form of, of an act. I don't know, can somebody help me out here? Well, I think yeah. there's because two I, different I, things I, going on, I, though, I as well, right? Because the warrant um, empowered the AFP to do more than just go in and search. The right. warrant empowered the, the AFP warrant? to edit documents, right. for example. Okay. And that's, I think, that's okay. a really concerning Who um, this warrant? aspect. Yeah, so it's really interesting. Warrants are usually... I don't know whether in this case, but usually they are issued by a mid-level bureaucrat, you know, who works in a court. Okay. Right? Okay. They go in, the police go in with um, some evidence in the form of what they allege, basically. Uh, there are some, what appear to be, at least on the legislation, detailed requirements that need to be at least considered by that mid-level bureaucrat. Uh, in practice, what you get is a mere statement, I considered this, I considered this, I considered their person's mm. right to privacy, uh, and the warrant is issued. Right, right. There's a pro forma sort of that you track through on the warrant, usually the application and the warrant, and it's often ticker box for di- different things sure. and, and some you, sections and you really require reasons. that any measure have, of thought has gone into issuing um, a warrant. And, for example, I did a case uh, quite recently where I asked for the search warrant, which is a pretty standard uh, part of preparing a trial because you yeah. want to see if the evidence might have been unlawfully unlawfully obtained and therefore able to be excluded. And I was sent by the DPP a copy of the application for the warrant. Um, and I wrote back and I said, oh, look, it's not the application that I was only after. I was also after the warrant. Yeah. And they said, no, no, that's all we've got. And I said, oh, that doesn't sound right. There should be a warrant. Uh-huh. And it transpired in the end when we conducted the hearing that the police officer had gone to the court and handed in the application for the warrant, which had then been stamped with the seal of the court and handed back. And then the application for the warrant had been executed over the house and the person's property taken. But in fact, there was no search warrant. So that is the degree to which you can see sloppiness. I mean, let alone other errors that you see which are um, more subtle and complicated, I suppose, where a particular sort of mandatory consideration hasn't been looked at or the warrant on its face is invalid in some sort of technical way. So you cannot assume that these warrants are issued with any measure of thought because it's quite often not the case. Well, just to that particular case, what's the DPP doing? Yeah, look, the DPP took a pretty reasonable approach in argument in terms of conceding... Clean the pie off their face and... Yeah, once that was, was uncovered, I assume. Yeah, once it was uncovered. That, it hadn't been disclosed. No, it hadn't been disclosed. Yeah, I had to ask. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at any given time, a news outlet is going to have information in its possession that was likely leaked to it in breach of a law. Okay. So, on that basis, any federal police officer can walk into a registry of a local court, get a warrant, 
and go in and raid any news outlet. Sure. And that's the current situation. That's, that's where we are at the moment. And to your point, Jim, who knows how future government will use that? Yeah. Um, and it's really frightening because that's all you need to do to stifle the speech. You don't have to charge, ultimately. Mm-hmm. You don't have to drag people before the courts. You just issue the warrants. You do it enough times. Maybe you get a magistrate to sign off on allowing you to change what's on their drives, yeah. delete things off their computers... Mm-hmm. It has a chilling effect, yeah. for sure. Completely crazy. I think it also raises a important question about journalistic practice. And you see an example of this, I think, in the Julian Assange case, where if you believe the media reports, he seems to have crossed a line where he's dealing with a source, if you accept that he's a journalist in the first place. Um, he's dealing with a source <clears throat> and ends up assisting the source to crack a password, basically. So he's crossed from the position of merely being a recipient of information to to being part in an active way of a transaction where he becomes complicit um, on the versions that I've seen in the media of certain criminal offences under American law. Right. So, yeah, I mean, journalists are privileged people in the sense of, as a general proposition, having immunity from the criminal law. So there's a question here, I don't mean in... Uh, the particular case we're talking about, but yeah. just as a general proposition, you know, there's a question about journalistic practice where it's one thing to receive information from a source, it's another thing to join in a criminal conspiracy to steal information. Sure. And if you do that, I don't think you can rely on free speech and so forth to say that, that you should be immune from the criminal law. Look, sure. But in Australia, what are you going to do? What are you going to do in a courtroom if you're a journalist and you've got your tail between your legs? Nothing. There is nothing to protect you, right? In America, you've got freedom yeah, of speech. there's nothing to protect you, that's right. Right. Yeah. So you've got freedom of speech as somewhat, you know, in the Constitution. Yeah. Uh, why isn't a Bill of Rights considered, or well, it's, it's often considered, what's, the, what's holding it back? Does anyone have any, any thoughts on that? Look, it comes up sort of fairly regularly in terms of the policy debate. And uh, when the Rudd government came in, they initiated an inquiry into it. I think they ended up um, only recommending a statutory Bill of Rights, which is obviously weaker than a constitutional Bill of Rights, but that uh, proposal died um, at some point. Look, it's generally that the conservative side of politics generally opposes it. Uh, the left is more supportive of it, though there's certainly been, been exceptions to that. Bob Carr was a strong opponent of a Bill of Rights in New South Wales. Look, I think it's really needed, and there's this whole body of international law out there you know, international law and national law internationally about what human rights should be protected and a very sophisticated body of jurisprudence about um, how you do it. And we're totally cut off from it. And we're the only country, I think, in the Western world that doesn't have some form of form um, of a Bill of Rights. That's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And speech is at the heart at the heart of any Bill of Rights. Well, I just want one. You know, it's going to be an ongoing podcast. We've got to protect our asses here, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. Well... We who knows? Who knows where they're we're they committing... They've got a strong legal team to back me up here, but, you know, still... I mean, we I... charge, mate. We're not free. Don't <laughs> yeah. assume that. When I, was, when I was thinking about what to say about the warrants on journos issue, one of the thoughts that crossed my mind is I have to be careful not to accidentally commit the offence in funny? talking about the issue itself. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Yeah. And funny? and frankly, given the breadth and the complexity of the, of the offences as they're drafted in the legislation... Yeah. It's almost impossible to know. I mean, it's impossible for, for me to know, and I'm a barrister who does that sort of thing for a living. There you go. How is it possible for the layperson to know? Mm. Communicating information clash, 
classified as an official secret. <clears throat> well, it's in the articles, yeah. right? Yeah. That's an important point because I think the focus in this debate is more constructive when it's on the terms of the criminal offence, so looking at whether the offence itself is properly drafted. I think a lot of the media commentary about this in terms of assuming some sort of ill intent to the government, assuming that it's outrageous ipso facto because a journalist's house has been raided, I don't find a lot of that commentary to be necessarily that informed or useful. I just think we don't have a lot of information, but what I think is pretty clear is that the offence is far too broad and there should be a standalone uh, exception or defence that is crafted with the principles of free speech in mind that applies to journalists. But there's all sorts of complexities about what is a journalist these days. Sure. That's for sure. Absolutely. It's interesting, in the age of electronic media and electronic transfer of information, what is a journalist has changed. The example you just gave, Stephen, with Assange um, helping crack the password, which Mm. is the allegation... You can easily imagine a journalist 25 years ago saying, look, bring that document to me and I'll photocopy it quickly and you can take it back. And that's not really all that different conceptually. Yeah, It's not. Yeah. Idea, whatever it takes. Especially if you're talking to people and you're quite informed and you're, for example, telling them what sort of documents you might need or what sort of documents might help your story. There's a very fine line between being a recipient... Uh, journalist and entering into some sort of illegal conspiracy. Okay, we have to end it there because we could go on and on, and I think in future episodes we will. Very enlightening as always, but the time has come to talk about the fun things we've been up to in the month since we recorded episode one. Starting with you, Felicity Graham, where have you been? What have you been up to? Jim, I've been in Japan for that the last couple amazing. of weeks. Tell us about it. And I had an amazing time. I could tell you a lot of different um, stories about the adventures I had there, but there was an interesting legal event that occurred whilst I was there, which is to say that the three executives from the energy company that were prosecuted in relation to the Fukushima nuclear disaster were acquitted whilst I was in Japan. Uh, I've just read that the prosecutor is going to appeal that acquittal, but um, yeah, Crazy. that's the latest from the Japan legal world. Acquitted. Yeah, so there was quite an interesting sort of journey to them even being prosecuted because um, in Japan they have two types of mechanisms for the way a person can be prosecuted. One is the public prosecutor. The other is called a community prosecutor. We have a similar sort of um, situation here where we have usually the police or the DPP prosecuting matters and then we have private prosecutions. Um, But, yeah, in relation to the Fukushima disaster, the public prosecutor twice refused to bring the prosecution and then it went to this community panel prosecutor that then eventually brought the case and... Apparently in Japan, the conviction rates for public prosecutions versus community prosecutions um, are really disparate. It's really, really high for public prosecutions, really, really low for community prosecutions. So this seems to have performed to that norm. Right. Fit right into the uh, the scale. Um, Emmanuel, what have you been up to, mate? Well, I, I had a three-month trial that I won in a week, hey. which is always an interesting feeling. Um, the Crown ended up dropping it. So I've just been basking in the glory of that, which is to say getting over my exhaustion and 
you know, planning this weekend to go up into around Newcastle or north of Newcastle where there is the Sculptures in the Farms. Oh, Sculpture on the Farm. My mum runs that. It, no way. Oh. No way. Well, this, yeah. I see you going there tomorrow, Dungog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it looks so awesome. I had it's no idea. Oh, my God. Okay, excellent. Yeah. We'll talk about this. Sculpture on the Farm. Sculpture on the Farm. At Dungog. At Dungog. Yeah, yeah. Philippa Graham is the... Felicity's mum. My mum and also the the chief organiser. Running from... Oh, it's running um, this long weekend. This long weekend. Yeah, five dollars admission. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, no, I think it might be free on Monday <laughs> and free for children. I think. Okay. My mum's going to kill me for not knowing the no, exact we'll details. In, in the description of the episode, don't worry about that. Do take care of that one for sure. Okay. Yeah, uh, now, also um, before we sign off completely, we are ha- we have been in the presence of royalty. It's true. Uh, the Deputy Mayor of Dubbo Regional Council, ladies and gentlemen. Congratulations, Mr. Stephen. Sorry, Thanks, Council. Stephen. Sorry, uh, Your Highness Stephen Lawrence. Yes, that's fine. <laughs> well Deputy done. Worship, is that what you do? Your, your worship. Sure, I can do. Yeah, I can deal with that. How did this circumstance come about? What, what happened? Oh, mate, I wouldn't want to uh, reveal the internal workings of local government. It's a bit like a sausage factory. You probably okay. don't need to know okay, exactly yeah, how yeah. it happened. But um, look, it did happen, and um, yeah, that's been taken up a lot of my time over the last month, particularly um, on water issues. Yes. Um, and Dubbo is not running out of water, oh, um, despite on. what's been, been on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. You no. run out of water in six hours or something. No, it's yeah. not running out of water. Okay. And even in the event that uh, the river runs dry, there is plenty of groundwater to uh, to meet the needs of the town. So it's really about, in a worst-case scenario, how do we balance the competing needs of the town and agriculture and industry so that's been taking up a lot of my time well, in Dubbo. The people of Dubbo couldn't be in safer hands, so congratulations to you. Cheers. And to all the weeks, thank you very much for your time. I know it's it's uh, it's not easy to give your time, as we talked about in last episode. Uh, so thanks again. Uh, I know that our audience really appreciates it. This has been Felicity Graham, Emmanuel Kirkusharing and Stephen Lawrence. I'm Jim Minns. This is The Weeks. We'll see you in a month. Thanks for listening. Please like The Wigs on Facebook at The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.